as a strategist, you should never try to predict the future because you will always be wrong. Instead, what you should do is you should essentially ask yourself, if this is what I think the future will be, well, what else do I need to believe in order for that future to happen? Right. So what needs to happen in order for that to happen? And on the way, what are the exit ramps in the case of if those things don't happen? That's one, right? So when you're kind of understanding your overall strategy. Welcome to Behind the Product, a podcast by SEP, where we believe it takes more than a great idea to make a great product. We've been around for over 30 years, building software that matters more. And we've set out to explore the people, practices, and philosophies to try and capture what's behind great software products. So join us on this journey of conversation with the folks that bring ideas to life. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to the show. Our guest today is Jerron Peoples. He's the Director of Strategic Initiatives at ARI, as well as heading up strategy for Sports Tech HQ. Jerron shared with us how he grew into corporate and investment strategy through his experiences with Rolls-Royce and High Alpha. We also talked about what the indie tech ecosystem looks like today and how different firms all contribute. Thank you to Jerron for sharing his perspective and experiences with us. And before we dive in, I also want to thank Raman Ori, our CEO here at SCP, for joining me in this conversation. I always appreciate his questions that I never think to ask. And as always, if you think there's one person who might enjoy our show, please consider sharing it with them or share some feedback from me. You can send me a note at podcast at scp.com. All right, let's get to it. Hope you enjoy. I am an, an Indiana transplant. I grew up probably most of my life in, in these two states, which is New York and North Carolina. New York was early, early days. North Carolina is where I finished out high school as well as did college. So I went to North Carolina A&T, HBCU. I was an athlete at some point, uh, and then I wasn't, <laughs> uh, thanks to uh, thanks to surgeries. Oh, yeah. Yeah, so, um, but that's kind of a, I like to say, a uh, foreshadowing for, for what I'm doing now. But I studied supply chain and finance, and mm. with that, ended up working at a place called Rolls-Royce uh, on the aerospace side. I've heard it. Somewhere yeah, somewhere in it. Indy, right? Yeah. 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 You got a place here? Okay. Yeah, really small building right yeah, next yeah. to Lucas Oil. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, yeah. Essentially, I did a, a rotational program where I got a chance to see all the different facets of the business that made, you know, Rolls-Royce gas turbines. And from that point, I decided I wanted to get into strategy. So I started in procurement strategy, looking at a lot of different commodity strategies, contract negotiations, mm -hmm. cost out initiatives. And then from there, made my path into eventually strategy and corporate development. But, you know, having stints in business development, sales, yeah. operations and, and different things like that. And then from there, I had coffee with a friend and he kind of talked to me about this sports tech initiative. And he was like, hey, you know, it's this great mix between technology and sports and strategy and investment. And I think you'll be a really great fit for mm. it. And honestly, I didn't hear anything he said after sports. Uh, <laughs> so I was like, oh, yeah, I'm in. I remember that night I went home, talked to my wife about it. She said, yeah, that sounds like your dream job, business and sports. Uh, I was like, yeah, I know. It might be a little too good to be true. But it turned out that that was not the case at all. So sports tech 
HQ essentially is an initiative set up by the state of Indiana to say, utilize all the tech investment as well as the venture ecosystem and then all of uh, the sport ecosystem that was built you know, in the, the late 70s by Indiana Sports Corp being the first sports commission and essentially put bring those two worlds together in the name of economic development to attract early stage sports technology companies to the state and essentially build an ecosystem. When you say ecosystem, define that in your, because I, you know, that's, I feel like that's a word that a lot of people talk about yeah, yeah. and it, I'm sure the context is really important for you at sports tech and at ARI. What, did, what do you think that means? We try to take a, a very basic approach to it, right? So to have an ecosystem, you need private capital, yeah. you need public markets, and then in between those two things, you need entrepreneurs, mm. you need R&D centers, and you need venture capital. And then, you know, even going a step further, uh, which is how our initiative was set up, you need government support, you need university support, and you need people like yourselves as well. You need service providers, right? And not just in the legal and sure. you know, accountant space, but, but also on the technology side as well. So if you have all of those things, and we're talking within a market or within an asset class like sports tech, that within itself is an ecosystem okay. and that can be physical or it can be, you know, kind of just in the ethos. Okay. That helps. You mentioned R and D centers as a part of that. Is that sort of a concentration of companies doing interesting things? Is that university? Is that something else? It's a mixture of, of all of the above. So I, I think if you look at the, the DOD space, which is the space that I kind of come from, you have dedicated labs, you have consortiums, you have OTAs, you have different physical as well as virtual mechanisms to kind of stimulate development of tech. I think from a sports tech perspective, it's universities, right? So it's universities, it's uh, athletic departments, it's the Pacers, it's the Colts, it's the NBA launch pad. It looks a little different based off of your asset classes, but at the end of the day, the whole point is to get to that next S-curve or even extend the current S-curve. I'm kind of curious, you know, we went to Rally a few months ago and where, where we met and met a ton of new people, saw a lot of friends. It was kind of like the biggest networking event uh, in Indy uh, here recently. You know, one of the things that I thought I understood about some of the venture companies here in, in town I learned a lot of new things, which is great. I'm kind of curious, how does ARI and SportsTech HQ differ or compare to like IEDC, Elevate, High Alpha? Where yeah. you guys fit inside of that grouping? I would say we, we probably fall in between all of those organizations, mm. right? So I would like to say from an ARI and a SportsTech perspective with the IEDC, they're a valued, valued stakeholder as well as partner. We would not exist as an organization the way we exist today without their partnership and without their strategic direction. So just want to put that out there. From a high alpha perspective or from other creators that you kind of spoke of, we, we like to call ourselves venture development organizations, right? So we're not traditional venture capitalists where, you know, we have LPs and we have to go out and deploy these dollars for a crazy return. Our thought process is a little more strategic than that. You know, we don't necessarily have to look for home runs or unicorns. We right. can look for very stable companies that have a product that we think the market needs. And 
if the market needs it, well, then eventually they'll go on and grow at a moderate rate to yeah. be a, a reputable company. And if you can do that here in the state of Indiana within sports tech, right. we want you here. Yeah. You don't need a hundred X return. Correct. Yeah. Yeah. So we kind of see ourselves as an ally to all of those individuals and even outside of the state, right? You know, working in sports tech, very quickly, uh, you have conversations with those in, on either coast, as well as uh, Texas. You know, we've been kind of welcomed amongst the, the nation with, with open arms where they're feeding us deal flow and, and vice versa. All right. What's the coolest sports tech company you've seen thus far? Oh, the coolest one. Well, I'll, I'll say the coolest one to me as yeah, a yeah. self-proclaimed watch guy. Um, <laughs> I don't know any reference numbers, <laughs> but I can look at a picture and say, oh, I like that. Yeah. Is a company called Ganance. Um, so they're, uh, they're founders out of Chicago. He's a former IBM technologist. He's an adjunct professor at Tufts, really sharp guy. But essentially, it's a chip that goes on the back of any watch, and it can turn any watch into a smart watch. So I have on a, a regular mechanical yeah. watch right now, and essentially using this chip, using their app interface, it'll tell you whether you got a phone call, an email. It could tell you how many steps. Uh, you know, it could track your steps for you. It could do anything that an Apple watch could do, but you get the, the benefit of wearing your- A regular, uh, more standard exactly. watch. Or as a very good friend of mine would say, a timepiece. A timepiece. Oh, yeah. He's, he's a watch guy. Yeah, watch yeah, guy. Yeah, yeah. 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 I'm basic. I have an Apple watch that I wear every day, so <laughs> I'm okay with that. Well, my wife stole mine one day, and I decided to go back to regular watches. There you go. I love it. It looks better than the Apple watch, I got to say. I think so. I think so. <laughs> it was interesting. You talk about the, the sort of the return scenario. So we have probably a mutual connection at IADC and Ryan Locke. And I know it's one of his big missions is thinking about how do we sort of turn the narrative on venture from get big, get bought. And candidly, like, yes, a lot of money flows, but you don't necessarily create long-term value for people, right? Like a great place to work and a great product in the market, right? And so how do we, how do we start to change that conversation in a more enduring companies. Um, and, and Elliot from High Alpha Innovation, just that, that was the keynote at their conference a couple of weeks ago. Like, how do, we, how do we change this narrative? We're burning too hot. It's like, how can we build things? And maybe even going further on that, when you're in sports and even when you're in sort of a kind of a typical corporation, like keeping score is easy, right? Like, did you hit your revenue targets? Did you hit your profitability goals? Did you score more points than the other team, right? Like, Whatever the mechanism, score, scorekeeping is a part of the part of the game. It sounds like for what you're doing, scorekeeping would be hard. And I, I'm curious how you how you deal with that. How you how you keep score? You know, is this effective? Am, am I am I succeeding? So we have one key mechanism that tells us whether we're doing our job effectively, and that is how many companies have we attracted to the state. So our goal this year was to attract four. We're going to end up attracting eight with an expectation of 10 over the next year as well. So that piece is easy, but it's more encompassing than that. You know, a lot of times we have the conversation around, especially now that we've started to pick up momentum in the public eye is, if we can't help you, well then, not to say we, won't, we, we don't want you here, but you know, we wanna make sure that we're bringing companies here that benefit from the ecosystem. You know, maybe there's a business development pipeline that we can tap you into, or maybe there's follow-on dollars 
where your company essentially fits their thesis. We don't want to bring anyone here that's going to be 110 you know, percent level of effort more than what they're already doing. So for us, it's really just tra- staying true to Indiana, staying true to wh- who that company is, and then just trying to connect the dots as best as we can. But I would say I spend probably more time in diligence on the people, so on the leader, on the team, because, you know, when you're, you're writing checks, the sizes that we're writing, which isn't very large, and you're investing in companies at like the earliest stage you possibly can, usually the business model probably makes sense if we're having extensive conversations. The capital structure is almost non-existent because <laughs> they're really, really early. So the the ultimate variable is the leader. It, yeah. It's the founder or the co-founders, yeah. or it's the you know small leadership team that's already kind of been put in place. So you know, for me is I just want to understand like what makes you tick. Why do you think you can solve this problem? I mean, there's humility in this. Like, hey, if you can't benefit from the indie ecosystem, go find a different one that might benefit you as a business better. Because to your point, like, I'm not looking for 100x growth. I want a sustainable business that's going to add jobs for folks here in Indy, that's going to add to our economic uh, position and potentially help to bring more companies here. Well, and, and it's sort of an abundance perspective too. Yeah. Like if we're not the right fit, there might be the right fit somewhere else. Right. And some other company might benefit more. Right. right. Like, yeah. and then everybody's winning. Yeah. And not to say, like, I would love the unicorn. <laughs> sure. Right? Yeah, 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 yeah. I would love those companies as it's well. It's just, it's not goal number one. Right. Yeah. Well, yeah. and and it's, uh, you know, to use a sports reference, which I always do, shots on goal, mm-hmm. right? So statistically, if we're able to spread the wealth, statistics say that we'll probably be more successful. Yes. Now, you do have the the situation where you say, hey, you see some a founder or, or, or a company that has high reward, but also has high risk. Well, now the conversation becomes, all right, are we willing to make that bet? And, you know, that's a whole another conversation yeah. that we can get into. <laughs> I want to dive a little bit into the indie ecosystem and maybe some of the, I'll say the gaps that might exist in our current market in indie. Before we go into that, though, I have folks that I tend to have coffee with or meet with uh, around town that are talking more about like wanting to get into strategy, whether it's product strategy, business strategy, whatever, that's becoming a very common word in a lot of conversations. If you had to give that person that's, you know, maybe still early in their career, but went ahead in that trajectory, what do you think they need to be investing in from a professional development perspective? How do they move in that direction? I would say go and be a student of how businesses function whether it's a small business, large business, you know, mid-size, just have a basic understanding of the fundamentals of a business, right? What drives profit, what drives cash, what drives revenue, and then understanding whether it's a service-based company or whether it's a company that builds widgets or maybe mm-hmm. it's a financial institution. Yeah. I would say that's the easiest way to get into strategy, especially if you haven't figured out what industry you want to be in or yeah. whether the company that you're currently at is the company that you want to do strategy in. Mm. Just having a broad idea as to how businesses work, how markets work, how, and then how those things change within the different industries and how they kind of all play together. That would be my piece of advice because mm. that's exactly what I did. Yeah. <laughs> I think it worked out. I think that's really interesting because I have a personal fascination with understanding business models 
And I think, you know, the more that I've done that over the years, the mentors that I've had and the coaching that I've gotten, people like Ruman, it's been really helpful because it's both feeding an interest area of mine and I think equipping me to have these kinds of conversations even on the show. So yeah, you're, it's like the reps and being a student, I think is, that's really wise. Yeah, I, sh- I share that. <laughs> yeah, thanks. yeah, it's, uh, it annoys my wife sometimes. <laughs> She's more on the, the healthcare space. She's a pharmacist and at a hospital. So usually I ask questions around. She's like, trying where it's the VA. I don't know that. I don't know the answer to that question, which, which is fair, which is fair. So as a strategist, you should never try to predict the future mm. right? because you always be wrong. Instead, what you should do is you should essentially ask yourself, if this is what I think the future will be, well, what else do I need to believe in order for that future to happen? Right. So what needs to happen in order for that to happen? And on the way, like, what are the exit ramps in the case of if those things don't happen? Um, so that so that's that's one. Right. So when you're kind of understanding your overall strategy and then I will even say as you're doing like a business model analysis, I think it's really important to understand, well, what are those sensitivities to that strategy you just put in place? What's the sensitivities to your business, your business model, right? Meaning sensitivities, meaning these are things that I cannot control. And if they go south, well, what happens? Does it does it blow up? Does it is it still OK? And figure out which one of those sensitivities, if there's a handful of them or if there's only one, like how bad do, do those sensitivities need to turn in order for everything to essentially go away? And then you'll be able to essentially do Monte Carlos off of that, right? So now you can run, you know, simulations to say, you know, if if uh, you know if apocalyptic, you know, if uh, yeah, Black Swan event, came yeah, out, yeah, 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 know, yeah. Then like, hey, I can still sell this. <laughs> like, oh, great. <laughs> or like, oh, you know what? I probably won't be able to sell this. <laughs> so yeah, those are just you know two little two little things I would add. In my head, I was thinking things like could be regulation. It could be specific economic things like the price of oil, the, the value of the dollar. Is I mean, is it- You're exactly correct. So yeah. no, I can't control that. No, you can't. The only thing you can do is monitor it and you can say, hey, based off of the level of information that I have today, I believe that those things are relatively stable. If those things are relatively stable, I see my business case not being impacted at all. But- how can you use sight into future endeavors, right? So the change in leadership or, you know, potential change in policies, how can those things impact some of the sensitivities that you kind of mentioned? I worked on a project where, you know, one of the key sensitivities was range. So it was, I mean, I was at role, so it was an aircraft, right? And one of the things was that, hey, if, if the range of the aircraft falls you know, below this critical number, essentially the business case completely folds because all of the key destinations that you need to get to are, even with crosswinds, are within this range. So anything less than this range, essentially the the, the, the aircraft is deemed obsolete. Mm. But here's the crazy thing. Anything more than that critical number, you could argue that it's diminished returns because you don't get that much more destinations that you can now achieve with that with that aircraft. So on one hand, you have where you say, hey, if I if 
focus on if I optimize my aircraft for range too much, essentially I'm investing dollars that don't need to be invested. And then on the back end is that, well, if I don't invest enough money and that range suffers, or if I make too many trade-offs to where that range suffers, well, now it's still considered obsolete. So Mm -hmm. it's like a very small window. And that was just one of like five sensitivities that we were also tracking. Now that's a rare one where you can control it, but you can't control the distance between New York and London. Like you can't control that. It is what it is. Yeah. Maybe to the point you made earlier, like to really understand your business, whatever, whatever, whatever place you think you're going to play in, to have that kind of understanding probably lets you make much better decisions early and avoid certain pitfalls. Or even uh, let's say you were investing in a, in something that was very government oriented right now and you have possibility of regime change in a year. Maybe it is or isn't the right moment to make a particular strategic bet. Right. Right. Yeah. Like maybe you need to wait and see what happens after November. Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> it, it's so interesting because, you know, that's there's very much like an engineering process around what you were just talking about. And then also once those if you've got the business fundamentals, you've got all this data, you've got all the things that can inform a decision. There's still a bucket of intuition oh, yeah. and experience in all of this. And it can be informed on some of this data. But there's this. There's a real art to the science of predicting the future. <laughs> yeah. Well, there's a reason why they call it a bet. Yeah. Oh, right? yeah. And you're, you're still betting with all the information, yeah. with all the analysis and all the, you know, advisement that mm-hmm. you, you're either given or giving. At the end of the day, it's still like a, well, I believe all this is wrong. I'm going yeah. to go left instead yeah. of go right. Yeah. Or, hey, I'm going to use all this information to go right instead of going left. And I think ultimately what I've seen, and this is big company, small company, no matter where, is sometimes decisions aren't made because of what I just said, Mm -hmm. right? It's like, you could be wrong either way. You'd be damned if you do, damned if you don't, right? And I think so many times then there's no decision that's made. And by the way, no decision can be a strategic decision decision, as long as you do it on purpose. So, you know, just want to... Yeah, it's often, you know, something that my own personal just journey in as a professional as a person, you know, I tend to be very, I'm incredibly intuitive decision maker and I always kind of play to win. That's, you know, if you want to go into game theory, that can be dangerous. And I feel like, you know, coming to SCP has really balanced me out a little bit to help me be a little bit more thoughtful maybe wait and think about this for a minute instead of being so guttural, so reactionary. And it's, um, yeah, I don't know. It's been good for me to lean into a lot of what you're describing just for Zach and his career and just the way that I show up every day. I'm still very much more like, no, my gut says, let's go this direction. But sometimes more often than in the past, there's like, it's because of this. I can articulate a little bit better. Yeah. I love that. Yeah. I can, I can say growing up at a state of the art, you know, world-class engineering firm where it is, you have the best and brightest and you can go out and build, we can build anything, mm-hmm. right? Is what, is what we used to yeah. tell customers. We can build whatever you want. Can you build it economically? That's a whole another conversation. Yeah. That's where the strategy really becomes really important because mm-hmm. to your point is, do we have a right to win is what, you know, our head person used to always kind of ask us, right? Like, what's our right to win? And you may have a right to win, but the market may be 
you know, middle school, right? So now you're now the question is, well, do we really want to apply resources to a market that's really minuscule, even though we have a right to win? And then the complete flip side of that, right? You can have a, a huge market and you can have almost no right to win. Well, then the question is, well, how can you be so arrogant to think that you're going to walk into a market that have incumbents and because we are who we are, we're just going to make a better widget and essentially we're going to win business. It's like, yeah. well, like, it's pretty no, hubris. Not, yeah, exactly. <laughs> you know, so somewhere in the middle and that's why, you know, you go through those, uh, the process, right? So my you know, back background, supply chain, finance, you know, Kaizen, uh, Lean Six Sigma, right? Like you go through that demaic process. And I think strategy is very similar where there's no formal process. Everybody kind of has their own process, but it's almost like you have to go through the process. You can't, you know, you can't just rush to the hardest problem or you can't just rush to the market that that you want to go into because it's it's the biggest market. You really have to go through, you know, an, an order of operations for the organization that you that you operate in. So. So if we talk about, you know, the indie ecosystem, I think we touched on this a little bit when we all had coffee a little while back. We talked about what might need to exist in the indie ecosystem to attract more companies that would benefit from indie. I'm kind of curious where your thoughts are on that. You know, we've got, I feel like, a growing market. I would still maybe classify this as anecdotal. This is Zach's language, not not anything prescriptive here. But like, we're indie still like a tier two market, maybe. Some people might argue with that. We're not Raleigh. We're not Silicon Valley. But we're investing over a billion dollars now in venture funds to startups. We're kind of growing up. We've had a, a handful of, of really big exits. You know, look at interactive intelligence with Genesis and Salesforce. We have companies like Car and many others. So we're kind of growing up, but it still feels like there's some lacking of something. I don't even know how to describe it that people are like, oh, indie, like, oh, you're not Raleigh. You're not Silicon Valley. You're not. Uh, maybe even Nashville, Tennessee, has a has a seems like a more thriving tech ecosystem. What do you think's there in that? So that's something I, I literally wake up every day thinking about, and I would say I think it's just time. Mm. When you look at it from a university perspective, we have great universities, whether it be within engineering or whether it be within business or mm. performing arts. The universities are there. I think with some of the names you kind of just mentioned on the big company side, the the Eli Lillys, the Alancos, the Cortevas, the Salesforces, Genesis, the big company presence is also here. And then, as you said, the billions of dollars that have been invested and that will be invested mm-hmm. in the venture side or small business side uh, within the state uh, is definitely there, too. So for me, it's just a matter of a lot of those things are relatively new. Right. And I say relative. Yeah. You know, when you look at Raleigh or Durham, where I grew up, Research Triangle Park, I mean, that's been that's probably and somebody should probably fact check me. But that's been around almost as long as Silicon Valley has been around. My understanding that Research Triangle Park. Interesting. Right. And everyone's there. Yeah. Everyone from Sony to Cisco to what's it, Merck. So I think it's just the time. Right. I think it's the consistency over time. We're still very much a baby compared to some of those other cities you you mentioned. But I think we're on our way. I think as long as you have folks like us sitting at this table that are willing to be advocates for the state and willing to keep making those international ties, I think we'll we'll do 
large benefits for us. I found myself chatting with uh, some folks from out of state at Rally that are running like an accelerator, like a Y Combinator. Mm -hmm. Uh, I I forget what the name of the accelerator was. No, it wasn't them. One of the partners was kind of talking about how Indy's great to visit, but he wouldn't want to live here. And I'm like, oh man, why? Oh, wow. I'm like, wow. Like he was like, this is where you have like your third house or something. Like we live on different planets, my friend. (laughs) That is not how I live. But I just like, oh man, am I, how biased am I that I've born and raised here? Mm -hmm. You know, like, oh man, am I being honest about how awesome I think this is, this is to raise a family and start a company, you know? And I'm kind of curious, like what barriers still exist for folks? Here's a check, but as part of that check, you got to come here. Mm -hmm. It's like, ah. Yeah. I don't think I want the check now. So you say the barrier. And I again, I think the barrier is, I just think enough people don't know what it would look like to live in Indiana. I would say I was one of those people before I got here. I was like, oh, man, I got to move to Indiana. Payne Manning doesn't even play yeah. here yeah. anymore. Yeah. Right, right. But you get here, you live here, and maneuvering around the city is so easy. And then you realize that, oh, wow, you're only like two degrees away from key decision makers, yeah. which, you know, if you're a, a tryhard, as my brothers would like to call me, <laughs> or if you're someone that just wants to put your head down and grind on a really great idea, it's a place where you can come. And I don't want to say dominate, but it's a place you can come and get some really quality wins underneath your belt. Now, I think over time, it'll become a place where you absolutely need to come and dominate before you can move on to whatever it is that you need to go move on to. But I think that's the secret power or the superpower rather, sorry, of Indiana is the the connectability and your ability to move quicker than if you were in any other major, you know, major city or major hub. That's a really interesting point. There's, here, there's a strong argument. Great fast. Yeah. It's a strong argument. Like it's pretty fertile soil. So I'll be, I'll be braggy for a minute. Like we work for some of the largest companies in the world at SCP, right. And we're building some of their more interesting and more difficult software. Right. Mm -hmm. And we recruit exclusively from Indiana schools just from a a question of reach, but that world-class talent is right there. Mm -hmm. You, Purdue, Rose, Taylor, like uh, Notre Dame is not that far. Right. Like that talent is all right here. We are harnessing that talent and building for those biggest companies in the world. So clearly it can be done. Mm. Oh, yeah. And you don't have the barriers about cost of living and space and um, things like that. So it's ready. Maybe it's just it's just about time. Yeah, yeah. it is. More seeds planted and growing. Yeah. And I mean, one of the things that um, we've seen, too, as we're talking to some of these sports tech companies, especially the ones that are, are, are really successful, if you look at their the C-suite and founder a lot of them have Indiana ties, which is kind of wild through whether it's IU or Notre Dame yeah. or Butler, you know, they have ties to Indiana or they're from Indiana. So, yeah, it's one of those things where it's like, hey, if you have an SCP that's making a greater focus on making sure that we keep some of that talent, I don't know, maybe maybe five to 10 years from now, the landscape looks dramatically different. Yeah. You kind of touched on this and something that I I think is very true. You know, a lot of people would say that, you know, the Midwest, if you're doing B2B or B2C sales, the Midwest is very relational. They're not very transactional. And it feels like indie. Now, again, I'm biased. I'm from here. So I'll just own my bias here. But I have traveled and worked with companies well outside of indie. 
it feels even more so to your point, like you can get meetings with C-suites of some of the biggest companies here in town because of just, I don't know, the relational aspect of the way that people operate and do business, grab coffees, lunches, whatever. People like to meet and I think build into the next generation here, especially more so maybe than other places. I don't know. Again, I'm biased and all me to this. Something you just kind of touched on, I'm, I'm kind of curious, you know, as we think about the involvement for a company like SEP, for ARI, Sports Tech HQ and others, as we give ourselves more time, how do we get more intentional uh, inside that time as businesses, whether you're a service company, a product company, uh, an investment company, what does it look like to continue to foster the community that we have and the ecosystem that we have? What should we all be doing? Not stopping what we're currently doing. <laughs> more. Yeah, yeah, Do more. more. Yeah, more coffee, <laughs> more lunch, more dinner. No, man, um, I think my heart would stop if I had more coffee. Yeah, same, same. <laughs> um, the one thing that I noticed when I got to Indiana, and it's not to say that North Carolina or New York or Massachusetts or yeah. any other state, they don't have this. I think it's the willingness to want to help. And it's a very genuine case where it's, hey, if I help you, then in return, I'm actually really helping myself. And I believe that most relationships are rather transactional. The question is, is are you being honest with what this transaction actually is going to be? And I feel here, it's there's not very much smoke and mirrors. It's like, um, you know, I like to, I guess this is a shout out to the, the guys over at Heartland Ventures, but they've been very, very helpful in a lot of different facets as far as just helping me kind of understand the venture landscape. And this was well before I joined, you know, ARI or Sports Tech HQ. They kind of broke it down in the way of like, well, hey, if you being a strategy corporate development professional at Rolls-Royce, if you're able to understand the venture landscape, we're the ones teaching you the venture landscape. Well, chances are, if that day were to ever come where you wanted to make an investment in a fund, chances are it'll be our fund because we've established this relationship first. Like, there's nothing wrong with you saying that, and there's nothing wrong with that kind of being the reason to help someone because you're helping someone. There's no contract that says that, hey, I'm going to help you, but you have to put your money with me, which makes it a little more, I guess, nefarious on the on the back end. So. So I think it's the, I like to call it uh, staying curious piece mm. um, here that that everyone you meet is curious about, hey, like what is Sports Tech HQ? Yeah. You know, what is ARI? Like, what are you guys working on? Are there any synergies to what I'm working on over here? It's like, hey, actually, there is a couple of synergies. It's yeah. like, oh, great. We should, we should meet up more yeah. and talk about it. And then all of a sudden there's, you know, I call it breaking bread. Where, you know, now we're we're in business together. We're in business together out of a common interest to see something be better. Philosophically, I couldn't agree more. Yeah. Truth be told, I mean, there we talk a lot about how like SCP is not the only consulting firm in town. And there's no reason not to be friendly with the potential competing firms here in town because one, we're not the right fit for everybody. And two, there's way more opportunity in this in the market and the greater scheme of things that the likelihood of us really competing over each other is probably pretty low. Yeah. So why not learn from one another and be friendly and we're going to cross paths. There's no reason not to help each other get better. 
So I, I couldn't agree more. Yeah. Play abundant games, not scarce games. Yeah. 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 If you can. I'm, I'm sure there are markets where it, where it really is zero sum, but it's not. It's not for building companies. It's not for building products in, in most cases, right? It's, mm-hmm. it's a yes and. We can build on. We can build new relationships. Agreed. Agreed. So you mentioned the, the Heartland guys. Mm-hmm. I'm curious. I was reading about the um, BioWorks Tech Hub proposal. What do you think that means for us? I feel like there's a series of these things that we're continuing to get investment and notoriety and some dollars and opportunity funneling our way. Yeah, I mean, it's a, it's another opportunity for the state of Indiana, along with our partners, to kind of really put really Midwest on the map, right? So this was one of 32 designations mm-hmm. that, you know, the federal government essentially appointed as a tech hub. And as you know, you know, you got we have a very strong healthcare network and biotech that's already uh, essentially starting to kind of rear its head. Mm-hmm. And, you know, this was a sub compartment of the CHIPS Act as well. And ARI, we were able to win uh, along with our other partners, ME Commons or Microelectronic Commons uh, is what they rather us say. You know, there's a, a renaissance almost happening here in the state where I'm a firm believer that in order to innovate, you need government support. Mm-hmm. And I think this is a classic situation where you see or you saw the state essentially say that, hey, innovation is really important to us. And then being able to have the influence and the ability to essentially go out to get the federal dollars to support what that state mission is, is a pretty big deal. You talk about what's missing, kind of jumping back a yeah, little bit. Yeah. I think with these federal dollars coming in to essentially go alongside the private investment and the public dollars, I think you'll see a lot more people being receptive to either move to the Midwest or set their business up here in the Midwest, whether it be big company, medium company or small company. So I think that's going to be really, really large. Mm. And the good thing about sports tech, shameless plug, is (laughs) that sports tech is an adjacent See to, to all of that stuff, right? You know, microelectronics, semiconductors. There's some companies that are doing some really interesting things with biomarking, you know, as far as like, you know, maybe utilizing those devices that already exist to help prevent athletes yeah. from hurting themselves yeah. on the field or in, on the training uh, facility or, you know, wherever. So, yeah, sports is a, a perfect uh, microcosm of all of that. We need somebody to to fix quarterbacks from uh, tearing their Achilles. We need to stop this. Yesterday was a bad day for bad quarterbacks. Day for yeah. yeah. So I'm curious, one might assume that given the sports gravity of Indiana, that you're able to leverage that. So you, you've got the Speedway, you've got the Pacers, you've got the Colts, you've got IU, basketball. Like there's a lot of I don't know what feels like master. Are are you able to are you able to work with that? Is that great raw material for for sports tech? Yes. So I'm going to say something that is probably going to be very polarizing, but Indiana Sports Corps involvement in Sports Tech HQ is instrumental. So um, our executive director Jeffrey Hintz, the same way I kind of dotted line in the ARI, he dotted lines into uh, Indiana Sports Corp and I don't think this works without the backing of an Indiana sports corp. Mm. The fact that they were the first sports commission and they hold the keys to 
the sports gravity or our sports ecosystem here in the state of Indiana and even broader. Right. You look at the relationships with the Olympic governing bodies as well as the Big Ten. You know, that's just the, the name, too. That's been a huge asset for us. And then you add the fact that we're able to actually shell out dollars, right? Dilutive capital kind of even kind of doubles down on that. So, yeah, I would say we're definitely plugged into them. They're plugged into us. And uh, that's probably what makes us dangerous. I love it. So as as you look ahead, it's October 30th as we're sitting here. As you look into 2024 and we talk about time and the metric that you guys are using today of, you know, how many companies are we attracting, right? You guys have doubled that this year. You're going to lean into that even more next year. What does the next 12 to plus months look like for sports tech and ARI? Where, where are you going to focus or what's part of that strategy? I'll use macro lens first uh, from an ARI perspective is to execute on, mm. you know, the three big awards that we've been able to be a part of, mm-hmm. right? So we just need to put our heads down and execute on those contracts that we want. From a sports tech perspective, I think for us, it's, so we, we've attracted those eight companies. Um, and I'm a firm believer in the same way you've attracted them is the same way you can lose them. Mm. So one of the things that I've kept, you know, drawn around Indiana outside of his lovely wife and, and small child now, is the fact that opportunities were always given or are, are always arose, mm. right? So I think it's the same thing for the eight companies that will be here on Wednesday. It's how can we continue to keep opportunities alive for them here so that someone else can't just attract them away, right? As well as continuing to bring in new companies, right? And so for us, it's almost like a, a weird look on portfolio management of, okay, well, you know, we were really heavy on what we like to call the health and wellness slash performance type of companies. So companies that were centered around the athlete, you know, maybe this next cohort that we bring in or this next family of companies that we bring in will be more aligned to the fan side of things. Mm-hmm. Um, and then how does that kind of marry together? So that's kind of the the thought process, at least from from my perspective. No, that makes sense. Um, and then there's we have really really large plans to be the um, sports ecosystem, you know, of the world, right? So we want to be a beacon. So a lot of that is okay. Well, how are we doing internationally uh, from an international relations perspective? You know, we're, we'll be in Ireland, we'll be in Dublin, Ireland again next year uh, in March, right? So is there a more formal discussion that needs to be had between, you know, the folks at the IEDC and the folks at their Ministry of Sports in Ireland, which is, I think is awesome. Is the that the, that is that the official title? Ministry of Sports? Yeah, yeah. Oh, wow. Yeah, love yeah. It. They have a minister of, of sport. That's great. There. Yeah. I yeah. want to be a minister of something. And yeah, me too. That's cool. That's yeah. all. You're, you're now the, you're the Indiana Minister of Sports. I mean, really? Hey. We'll, thank we'll you. Get, we'll get right there. <laughs> I appreciate your, your words. <laughs> You know, one thing you you're talking about, like, you know, we've attracted companies, now we got to keep them. What do you think the care of those companies looks like? What are, what are the things, if you had to read the crystal ball, that they're going to need? Because I'm wondering, again, like, for the SEPs and the, you know, companies here that are part of the ecosystem of supporting those businesses, oh, we should be thinking about X, Y, and Z. This is what they're going to be needing. Yeah. So I, I think the big one is human capital, right? So it's mm. it's resources, engineers. 
program managers. And I think what organizations like like SCPs kind of provide is it provides the the filler. Yeah. So because as you guys know, to find the right person takes a very, very long time. And between that time of finding that right person, you can't just like shut things down. Yeah, you can't stop moving right. forward. Yeah. Yeah. Because your your investors expect for you to still keep growing and, and keep yeah. moving along. So I think that's where you look at the service provider network that we have here in town or, or within the state and you say, okay, well, how do we leverage those better? And is that a sports tech HQ thing where essentially sports tech HQ manages those relationships on mm -hmm. their behalf to take that burden away from them? You know, or is it, you know, how do we, how do we do a better job at developing our grassroots talent? You know, so Purdue's, have, they now have a, you know, sports technology engineering department. Yeah. Right. So is it, is it, hey, do we do that with Butler or IU or, you know, do we do one from a content generation perspective with, uh, with Ball State? What's Indiana State up to, you know, so do, you know, or, or not or, but we are kind of doing that. We're having those conversations. So it's really just a matter of talent, which is the really big one. I know everyone's trying to solve. And then I think the other piece that will probably go a long way is, again, that business development pipeline, right? So like, how can we get the companies tied in with the right folks? Mm -hmm. So everyone's not going to be able to sell to the Colts and the Pacers, you know, but maybe there's some some equitable relationships between the Horizon League where, you know, for that league and for a lot of those schools, you know, getting an influx of technology, especially at the beta level, you know, they may be able to recruit off the back of that. So I think it's for us, it's finding unique relationships between the stakeholders that we already have that can make that process a lot easier for the startup. So that, again, they're, they're not having to put 110 percent level of effort on something that they wouldn't normally have to do. You know, we like to, uh, in basketball, they call that scoring within the offense right? <laughs> versus the ball hog who uh, stops the offense. That's right. Yeah. I'm, I'm now coaching my oldest son's basketball oh, okay. uh, team yep, and yep. yeah, we need to work on passing and dribbling. It's like watching cats run up and down a court. <laughs> I got some tech for that. Uh, I could, well, we'll talk afterwards. <laughs> I'm just curious. I feel like when you're pensive... Roman usually has like something he's noodling on, and it's usually a really good question. I did, but well, I don't know if it's a good question. But <laughs> you, you, <Sure> is that. <laughs> you've been you've been very um, kind of outward focused. You shared a little about your journey, but mostly it's been about the X. So, so now I want to turn it back on you for a minute. Yeah. So you spent a considerable amount of your career in a sort of traditional corporation. Mm -hmm. We make aircraft engines. We sell services in adjacent to that. And now you're in this other world. And candidly, I encounter a lot of people who are very excited. They, they want to be venture capitalists. They want to be in the startup world. Not, not actually in the startup, but they want to be next to the startup. They mm. want to write the checks. And I don't know, what lessons, what advice, what perspective can you offer as somebody who has sort of lived in both worlds now? Mm -hmm. I will say, understand the difference between the velocity of work when you have a machine that can do a lot of the minute details and cranking for you, right? So being hooked up to the matrix is like what, what I like to call it, where you can just ask someone for information and get the information that you need versus, you know, kind of operating in this startup quasi VC world is that 
Well, the information that you're looking for, there is no one to ask that mm-hmm. will just give it to you, at least without paying a small, small, large fee, yeah. right? Uh, anyone will give you anything for a small, small, large fee. So to me, that's the difference, right? The abundance of information that is accessible to you that's already clean is the difference. And the amount of time it takes to find valuable information and valuable data and then doing all that yourself. So almost kind of going back to when you were, you know, probably a more junior employee, when you were knee deep into, you know, in Excel, making sure that the the data says what you want it to say. I would say that's probably the biggest difference. And I'm very much a, I want the raw data because I want to be able to see the data in 15 different ways that some random general report that I'll pay a company to run for me may not necessarily split the data the way that I kind of want to see it, which kind of leads me to my second point is that, and this is no matter which organization you're in, whether it's a relatively large, stable one or or, or a new one, is understand the market that you want to play in really understand it. And that's not just, you know, market projections and, you know, revenue outlooks, right? Like, no, that that's really understand how that money flows from consumer to the last point in the supply chain or the earliest point within the supply chain and understand what are all the the off ramps of that. Because I would say that's probably what has led us to be really successful as far as identifying early stage companies, right? Being able to figure out which companies really have a moat around them, uh, which companies do we really think will be successful because we have a really clear view on where we think the market is going, where we think it is, and where we think it's been. So that would be my my biggest advice is just know, know your market. Well, Jaron, this has been awesome. So thank you. Yeah, thank you. Any last shameless plugs? Because you know podcasting, Everybody's got one, and you can always do shameless plugs. Well, you know, the perfect spot. You'll probably have me back on here in about a year or so, probably. Um, so I can give more shameless plugs then, but okay. none, none at the moment. Okay, fair enough. We'll make sure people can find you because, as yes. a relational guy who loves coffee, yeah, yeah, hit yeah. your on up. Yeah, please do. Appreciate you. Thank <laughs> you so much. Oh, All thank right. you guys. Thank you. Sure.